Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 95. What are ways you could speed up Python? Have you thought of using a JIT, just in time compiler? This week on the show, we have Real Python author and previous guest Anthony Shaw to talk about his project, Pigeon, a drop in JIT compiler for CPython 3.10. Anthony's been working on Pigeon over the past year and recently released version 1.0. He talks about how he took over the project from Brett Cannon and Dino Veland. He covers the background on compilers and assembly he needed to take on this project. We discuss where a tool like this can speed up your Python code and alternative solutions. We also talk about his desire to make the project as deeply compatible with Python code as possible. Anthony talks about how his dive into writing the CPython internals book led him into the project. He describes what type of developer would benefit from exploring the book. We also cover his recent RealPython article titled Advanced Visual Studio Code for Python Developers. It's an excellent resource VS Code users should bookmark to revisit as they grow with the tool. This episode is brought to you by HoneyBadger. HoneyBadger offers error monitoring, uptime, and cron monitoring designed to tame your production and make you a better, more productive Python developer. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Anthony. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Christopher. How are you? Doing great. It's very winter here, and I was looking at your pictures on Twitter of dogs playing in the surf and being a little jealous yeah it's in the middle of summer so (laughs) (laughs) literally the opposite so yeah that's pretty funny so since we last spoke you are working at microsoft so what are you doing there yeah so i'm a cloud developer advocate and in two weeks time i'll have been here for a year which seems crazy because it's gone past so quickly (laughs) i bet yeah, it's it's quite difficult to pin down exactly what I do, actually. <laughs> There's just so many things from week to week, but really the focus is looking at how Python developers interact with Microsoft Clouds, which Azure primarily, and also Visual Studio Code and the Python tooling around that. So I kind of sort of take the, try and put myself in the shoes of a Python developer and uh, use the products and services and like interact with them and just look at the documentation and tooling and see what can be improved and work with different teams to do that. And then also do things like share knowledge about the right way to use it in the form of blog posts or documentation or videos or, or sometimes I just get stuck in and actually uh, work with the engineering teams to change the product. Okay. So they might bring you over to cover some of these things that people are discussing and you would present them the way that you feel that other users are using it and you know could help improve their situations yeah so for example got a, a platform called azure web apps which is where you can run you know flask or django or any kind of python web app and without worrying about the server infrastructure so you basically just have your package and your requirements file um, and it does all the rest for you it hosts it all for you and what I really wanted to do was to use the debugging features in VS Code, but to debug the actual like live server. And that wasn't wasn't something that was supported. So I basically just worked on implementing that, and that's being that was rolled out late last year. <laughs> so that's an example of like, yeah, um, I guess fixing something that seemed like it could be improved. Yeah, that sounds cool. Like I, I see you working on lots of projects, and I have kind of like three <laughs> that I wanted to try to talk about, uh, depending on how much time we we can uh, devote to it. You recently had an article on RealPython about VS Code, and so I thought we could talk about that a little bit. And I think that might be a, kind of a touchstone a little bit, kind of talking about the sort of development tools that you're using. Mm. And then you've been working on a project called Pigeon, and I thought we could talk about that. And then also the C Python internals book that came out since <laughs> since you were on. Yeah, great. I thought maybe we could start with Pigeon. 
there is a, an interview that you did with Michael Kennedy on Talk Python. It was uh, in November, and I'll, I'll include a link for that. And it kind of goes uh, in a much deeper dive into it. The whole the whole show is about that. But I wanted to talk about like how, how long have you been working on Pigeon? And I guess maybe we could start with like an overview of the project. Yeah. So Pigeon is a JIT compiler, which uh, I guess we can explain what that means. But um, sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Pigeon. So when you run Python code normally, if you're running the Python you get from Python.org or the one that comes with your operating system, when you type the Python code in and run it, it kind of interprets that code on the go, reads it, and compiles it essentially into like a cache format, which is what you see in those PyCache folders. Yeah. PYC files. So it puts them in this sort of cache format. And then when you run the code, there's an application that basically goes through those cache files and then decides like what to actually do. So, you know, calling functions or adding numbers together or even like importing and interacting with other libraries, whether that's like NumPy or Pandas. And, you know, more complicated stuff, I guess, like if you're using Pygame, then it's like, talking to the graphics card and like right i don't know all those low level drivers and things that need to talk to the yeah like making sound work and stuff like that so that that's done at runtime so that's um kind of like interpreted i guess whereas if you compare that with some other languages like what c and c++ you compile the application into a standalone executable and it has everything it needs in the executable so that's a ahead of time compiler or an AOT compiler. That. So if someone is writing a program in C++, mm. the the step before they can run the program is they have to sort of have it build and, and compile it, and, which is very different from somebody who's using Python. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like the only language that computers really understand is machine code. They don't understand Python or C or C++ or any of these things. They understand uh, machine code instructions, which are pretty much like that add add and subtract <laughs> yeah right uh, and multiply like they don't everything has to be boiled down to these really low level instructions at the machine level and so what pigeon does is basically it compiles your python code into machine code so it compiles it down into low level instructions uh, that the cpu can just run natively and some of the reasons that you looked at doing the project had to do with kind of t- the two talks that I'll link to here, these conference talks. You had a, a 2020 talk for PyCon that was, why is Python slow? Mm. And you described a mathematical problem, this uh, thing that measures the positions of uh, planets yeah, that, called the n-body problem. Yeah, And the way that math is done, and it's very complicated and Python, in the way that it's implemented, ends up being fairly inefficient in dealing with those types of numbers. And so you talked about this would be an area to kind of improve, and you kind of use that as a way to kind of talk about it again in your 2021 talk uh, at PyCon, where you're restarting the Pigeon project and saying, these are the types of optimizations that I could do that, that CPython maybe is currently not optimized to do am i getting some of the gist of it yeah that's spot on yeah okay cool so what i was wondering about is what made you first off i can understand the desire to want to make python faster but why were you interested in getting involved in this problem problem i originally heard about this because brett cannon and dino veland worked on this um uh, at microsoft okay uh, five or six years ago. I don't know how long it is now. Dino now works at Instagram, Facebook, or Meta, I guess they're now called, and he's working on a, a new compiler <laughs> um, specifically for their needs. Uh, and Brett just doesn't have the time to work on this. He works on VS Code. So it kind of got left for a few years. And um, I was just really interested in the project like as a learning experience. I looked at it and I didn't really understand how it could work or how it did work (laughs) okay and i just wanted to get stuck into something as a challenge and really get to 
actually work on it and improve it. And I thought that would be a good way to build up my own skills and build up my own knowledge in compilers. And it kind of followed on from having finished the book. That's what I was thinking about is that your book, the CPython internals book, you had to dive pretty deep into how CPython's handling things. And and maybe you were seeing some things that, I mean, your research into that book, I would guess would be a very healthy <laughs> jumping off point, you know, unlike somebody who's coming to pigeon cold. Yeah. So that was kind of the, the reasoning behind it. I could finish the book and I felt like I'd gone on this journey to understand something at a really low level. And then it's kind of come to a bit of an abrupt end because I'm not working on CPython, like the core CPython stuff. I'm not one of the core developers. It kind of came to an end and I wanted to keep digging okay. um, and go and go further down the rabbit hole, I guess. But, and it kind of cut off, I guess, at the machine code level. Uh, so after I kind of finished the book, I was going through a book on assembly. Hmm. So that was something I never really learned at college. We didn't do assembly at college. Oh, we briefly did, but... Um, what would be the things that they would have you do in college in assembly, just as like a, something to try out? Oh, they would just like add two numbers and stuff. It, it would, okay. Yeah, like I think they explained to us what the instructions were, but that's not really useful in a in a modern context like yeah you wouldn't actually practically sit down and write well some people do but <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't sit down and write a, uh, a program in assembly it's hard to parse i mean that's one of the huge advantages of of python is that you can look at it with all of its white space and and almost read it depending on how complex the code is yeah i did write a blog post how to write a Python extension in assembly as a bit of a joke. Okay. <laughs> and like all the steps you need and things like that. And you can, you can import it uh, and run functions that you've written in assembly. But I, I guess the point is that if you wrote that same code in C and compiled it into assembly, which is what the C compiler does, the C compiler will do a much better job of writing assembly than you will. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think you have to kind of have that uh, mentality, which is, Yes, you could write assembly yourself, but somebody's already done the, you know, decades of academic research into what's the most efficient uh, way to compile an application down into machine code, and uh, writing it by hand is not the answer. So yeah, use a compiler to do it. Yeah, and one of the things that was mentioned several times in your conversation with Michael was that this project is using .NET six and. In that case, you're leveraging some of the things that are inside of that set of tools, that .NET library, to help with these compilation to, to machine code too, in the sense that, what well, you know, you mentioned in the documentation that you can go ahead and just pip install it, but you still are going to be missing things if you were to try to use Pigeon because it's going to be missing some of these extra tools, right? Yeah, so you do need .NET 6 to be installed. This is one thing about Pigeon that confuses a lot of people, and I can understand why, because it is a bit confusing when I bring .NET in as a term. People think it's you know it's using .NET, but actually it's not. That, yeah, the, the term's overloaded because of the history of like .NET developers and you know people working and you know creating Windows applications, I think that it it kind of maybe got overloaded as far as the terminology of what it means. Yeah, so from .NET five, .NET basically got rewritten uh, completely from scratch, <laughs> and .NET was always a, a you know a Windows only thing, and it was like akin to the Java virtual machine. It has its own uh, intermediate language and it works with high-level languages like C-sharp and F-sharp and also C++. You can use uh, .NET from C++. So those are languages that you would write in and then it compiles down to like this middle language that you never really see uh, called CIL, C-I-L. Okay. And then basically like the .NET runtime, it's called, converts this code into runtime instructions for that operating system and that CPU. So okay. that was always at Windows only. And then they basically rewrote the whole thing over the last 
five or so years, what was called .NET Core originally, and then as of .NET 5, that then became the .NET is the is this new one, I guess. Okay. Some people still refer to it as .NET Core, but it's uh, .NET 5 and 6 are the new cross-platform .NET runtime. So with Pigeon, basically, going back to what I was saying about, you know, you could write assembly by hand, but a compiler does a much better job than than you would do. So what I needed, well, what we need for Pigeon is a uh, a, a thing <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, called a code generator, which will write assembly given a specific input and it will do optimizations based on you know what makes sense so in in, in on a cpu you basically you have instructions and there's the instruction set so for an intel cpu a 64-bit intel cpu uh, there's different instructions that it understands and the inputs are either a constant value like a, a which has to be a number or it's loading from a register which is like a kind of i guess like a variable but it's like a storage area on the CPU. So a code generator basically would do the job of figuring out which registers to use and like where they've been stored. And no matter how complicated the program, it would figure out how to boil it down into the machine code instructions. So like it does all that work for you. I don't have to figure that out. I, I've got books on that stuff and I've read chapters on it. <laughs> but like I couldn't write one from scratch. Like enormously complicated and the decades of research by people who are truly experts in compilers have got into that. So what Pigeon actually does is it uses a single component from .NET. It's actually just one library in particular, which is the the JIT compiler, which uses this the low-level code called SIL and compiles it into assembly code, machine code for Intel CPUs. And recently I've added support for ARM ARM CPUs. So the either ARM on Linux or the M1 CPUs on Mac. Yeah, I was wondering about that. You had a request out at the end of your PyCon talk. I'm guessing either someone hooked you up or or uh, you got more information from another team of for how to, how to get that implemented. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, I borrowed somebody's computer for a day. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I just like, oh, I just need it for a few hours, please, just to compile it. So yeah, it supports M1 now. If you want to see, a, I guess, a bit more of this, if you go to live.trypigeon.com, I've got like a interactive compiler. So basically, like how the compiler works. And I've put a demo application in which assigns it's a function in python that assigns three variables a b and c a is two b is three c is four and then it basically just does like simple arithmetic on those variables and then returns the result Uh, and at the bottom is a compile button and if you click on the compile button it will show you the sil code okay that pigeon generated and then on the right hand side actually showed you the assembly code and one thing you might notice as far like most people can't read assembly or there's no real point in (laughs) (laughs) learning it as a language into sometimes it's useful but something that's really important about what pigeon has managed to do on this demo application is it's looked at the function and noticed that the variable a uh, is only assigned once b is only assigned once and c is assigned twice and what it actually does is it works out the answer to the expression c plus a times B, and it just says, oh, actually, that's just 10. So, like, that's never going to change. Uh, That code can only return the number 10. So what it actually compiles to is return the number 10. So it doesn't even bother creating any of those variables at runtime. It basically just optimizes the application by noticing that it can only ever return a single value. So the assembly code on the right-hand side basically just says, return the number 10 as a Python object, and then that's it. Cool. So yeah, it's a lot faster. So that would be, I don't know how many times faster, probably 10 or 20 times faster than what Python would normally run that code at. And, and some of what's happening inside Python that makes some of these numerical things a bit slower is just the way that these things need to be turned into you know versions of Python objects. Mm-hmm that have lots of additional, I mean, they're literally objects. They have all kinds of, you know, methods and other things that can be applied to them that kind of go beyond, you know, something like a, a simple integer in 
machine code or whatever. So this is going to help kind of streamline some of that if it can recognize where to do it. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, numbers, I guess for, for, for math, you've got floating point numbers and integers. Yeah. And in Python, you've got both of those as well. So you've got the, the int type and you've got the float type, which is a, a 64-bit floating point number. So those are great, but where do you actually work on the CPU level? So like if you times two floating point numbers together, so like 1.5 and 3.0, for example, if you, t- if you multiply those in Python, uh, what it will do is it will get the floating point number, ask the CPU to multiply them, and then it will turn that result into a new object. So it has to allocate the memory to do that. Python's got like a whole system for managing object allocation and memory and stuff. So it's very efficient in the way it does that, but still it's slower than if you'd have written that in C or C++ because C and C++ would say, oh, a 64-bit floating point number is actually just a single CPU instruction. So let's not bother allocating memory because a 64-bit number fits inside a 64-bit CPU. Like when you say a 64-bit CPU, that's because the registers, like these temporary storage areas I talked about, they're 64 bits wide. So like just put the number in the register and multiply it uh, as like two instructions. Whereas when you run that in Python, it's got to allocate the memory, create the object. Uh, like it's going to do thousands of things. Yeah. Instead of just one, I guess. Let's face it. Your Python code is amazing, but it's still going to have errors. When errors do happen, it's nice to know Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger sends you alerts in real time with all the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding so you can quickly fix it and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring lets you know when your external services are having issues or your background jobs go missing or silently fail. Go to honeybadger.io and start being your team's or your own DevOps hero today. That's honeybadger.io. I'm kind of stuck on this .NET thing a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I... I what I'm wondering about is the workflow of of using Pigeon mm-hmm. and to be able to take advantage of it mm-hmm. is that you would import it and then you add one additional command. Is it Pigeon execute? I'm trying to remember what Enable. it is. Yeah. Enable. Okay. And then once you, you've called that, it's now going to look through your code you know, as you're running it as far as for these optimizations. Mm-hmm. And... The optimizing is happening. It's creating the SIL code. At the same time, I'm guessing there's something in the background that's sort of running to look at the SIL code and and then compile those things. The the components of the .NET stuff is running to to look for that on that particular machine where you have all this installed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in Python, everything is an object. So you know, uh, strings are objects, integers, floating point numbers. Classes are like instances of classes uh, are all objects, yeah. including functions. So they're called code objects in Python. So if you have a function that you define, and then when you run that, that is a code object, and it has properties like it has uh, which variables are in there, are there any constant values? So like you can look at the you can look at the code objects in Python with the dis, right? Yeah. So dis will actually like disassemble the bytecode in there. Okay. What Pigeon does is it actually adds a few extra fields to the code object. So the bytecode field is already there. That's the thing that Python creates. And then what Pigeon does is when that function is called, when Pigeon is enabled, it looks to see if these extra fields exist. And if they don't, then it will basically go through the bytecode and compile the bytecode into SIL, which is the .NET like it's it's basically bytecode, but for .NET. Yeah. But it's a, it's a lot lower level. So bytecode in Python will have like, there's a there's a one there's one instruction, for example, for merge dictionaries, which is actually quite a lot. <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot going on there. <laughs> okay. So the .NET bytecode is a lot lower level. So it compiles down into the .NET bytecode and it stores that as a 
attribute of the code object. So okay. what you don't see, I guess, when you run Pigeon is that your functions have a few extra fields in them. One is the uh, the .NET bytecode, and then the second one is the actual machine code. So like, and it's a, it's like a almost like a standalone executable. So it turns each function in Python into its own little program. Cool. And then when you run the function, it tells C Python, "Oh, you, you don't run that function now. I do." And Pigeon will basically like call that little standalone code and run it. So whenever you run the functions, instead of interpreting the instructions in the function, it will actually just run that standalone application. Wow. <laughs> That's cool. In a circumstance, what I'm wondering about is, I guess, maybe the portability of something like this. In your live trypigeon.com mm-hmm. example that's running as an Azure function. Yep. And so it would have the .NET stuff available in that install of how that's configured. But I'm wondering about like if you wanted to move this code around, the the SIL code can be compiled on these other these other machines, you know, depending on the installation, like if it's running on a Mac, it's going to have different machine code than it's on an Intel and so forth. So I, I wonder about like that, like what sort of things would somebody need? Like if they wanted to, they're doing lots of mathematical stuff and they could see this as a handy way to speed up that code. And they say, want to run it in the cloud or, or run it using some, something like Docker. Would there be lots of steps to kind of set that up? So that's actually, when we uh, started talking about this, I mentioned it's a JIT JIT compiler, a just-in-time compiler. And I said, we'll come back and explain what that means. So basically, like, that is what it means. Just-in-time, it does the, it compiles all that stuff, like the SIL and the assembly code specific to the CPU that it's running on. It does that when the function is called. So when you define a new function, and you run it when you've imported Pigeon and enabled it, it will then compile all the stuff. So it'll compile the SIL, it'll compile the assembly code, and it puts all that stuff in memory. Okay. So you, you don't have to worry about portability because uh, it figures that stuff out on the fly. And what makes sense for the CPU that you're running on, like what features it supports, and you know if it's an ARM CPU or an Intel CPU. And there's also other details about like which Intel CPU it is and what instructions it supports. So it, like, it figures all that stuff out for you on the fly. Okay. The thing is you need to have is the .NET runtime install, which you can install on Linux, Mac, and Windows. It's actually not even the whole .NET runtime. It's actually just one library that it needs. So in the Pigeon GitHub project, there is a Docker file in there. Oh, okay. Great. So that's like an example of how to run Pigeon in Docker. And the way you install .NET is actually just download a tarball from the .NET website and just extract it and tell Pigeon where you've extracted it. And it will look in there and find the library that it's looking for. So that's really all it needs. Yeah. It does need Python 3.10 as well, which, you know, when you talk about running on the cloud, gets a bit tricky because... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can like see. Like 3.10 is pretty new and like not all clouds support 3.10 yet. So... Yeah, the, the live.trypigeon.com is actually a Docker image at the moment. So yeah, the, the source code for that as well is on GitHub. So this the application that runs this is just a simple Flask app. And yeah, Pigeon was designed to be portable. So you know you can you can run it in a serverless environment, like a fun, you can run it in Azure uh, Functions, for example. You can run it in a Docker image. You can run it in a VM. Anywhere that would run C Python would also be able to run Pigeon because it is just an extension that you pip install and and load. Like you, you need to have one extra thing, which is the .NET library um, on the machine. Yeah. But like other than other than that, like it's just a thing that you pip install. So it's it's different to I guess other projects like PyPy or Cinder. That's the meta one, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. So those they're like other Python interpreters. So instead of running Python, you run Cinder or you run PyPy. Like, it's like a whole different application you have to run t- to run your Python code. Whereas with Pigeon, you just run Python and you pip install Pigeon 
And then before you run your code, you call a function to enable Pigeon. Yeah. And then it does the rest for you. So that that kind of uh, covers one of the things that you mentioned in your, your talk, kind of the design philosophy behind Pigeon, which I'm not sure if that was the design philosophy when Brett and Dino were working on it originally, but you had put this compatibility, 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 you know, as a, a bit of a focus. Yeah. So I wonder about that. Like, is that a change from how they had focused on it or is it kind of the same? I probably is a change. I, when it was originally written, it only worked on Windows. Okay. And it required a custom build of Python and a custom build of .NET only because <laughs> uh, like at the time, like it was technically impossible to do what they were doing. Like it was built as a proof of concept. Okay. So yeah, I kind of, uh, when I, sort of forked the project and then redid it i looked at the other i guess competitive products uh projects to pigeon and yeah there's like piston and PyPy, and i'm like okay so what why would people use pigeon over those uh PyPy is probably the most obvious one because it's very efficient it's been around for a long time but the, the reason people often can't use PyPy is because uh, it's not compatible with their whichever like libraries they're using or which C extensions they have. So I kind of wanted to make it clear that with Pigeon, I want to make sure that any code that runs in Python uh, would also run in Pigeon. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And you, you had mentioned in the other interview how you had tested it across quite a few libraries just to you know confirm that it, it, it's only going to optimize what it can optimize. That's kind of part of the design philosophy also, right? Yeah, so part of the, yeah, this, I guess the the downside of making it compatible with as much as I can find is that it won't be as aggressive with the optimizations. So PyPy is very, is really good with optimizations, but there are some, I guess, there are some drawbacks with compatibility on that. Um, and the same with Piston and some of the other projects. So I kind of wanted it to be, be almost as transparent as possible uh, that it's optimizing, which has drawbacks that, you know, it can't be as fast as it would be otherwise. So, for example, I'm working on pandas at the moment and trying to see where Pigeon can make pandas faster. Okay. Which is a really tricky problem because it's such a, <laughs> a big and complicated library. But, it, you know, it, it imports pandas and it runs all the C extensions and, like, that that works uh, out of the box. And NumPy, it works with NumPy. and Which is pretty fantastic already. <laughs> yeah, which is like... Uh, and the first time I actually ran it in Flask, it just worked. And I was amazed because it was like during a live demo. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I wonder if you can just like run the whole of Flask with Pigeon enabled. And it just like, it JIT compiled down into machine code like the whole of flask and it just worked and i was like oh that's pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's great so i kind of um and don't take this the wrong way but like i i think that that compatibility thing is not completely at odds but somewhat at odds with saying hey this needs python 310 and that mm. might be partly to do with just where the language is at with 310. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit, like why why you're requiring that. Yeah, so where, where Pigeon comes in is it will, yeah, I mentioned the Python bytecode. So in a code object, it has a, it's got the Python bytecode. Python bytecode is specific to the version of Python. Okay. This is the hard bit. So uh, in Python 3.7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, actually, which is, you know, coming out later this year, they changed the bytecode. So like, they add new bytecodes or they take away old ones. And like and normally that's just an implementation detail, but uh, like I care a lot about that with Pigeon because it, it, you know I have to use the bytecode to decide what that function should do. Right. And basically just just for my own sanity, I decided that I'm not gonna support multiple versions of Python because sure. I'd have to maintain multiple branches of Pigeon with supporting different versions. And also, like 3.10 is a great release and they made a lot of uh, advancements in efficiency. So the compatibility thing is important, but obviously it only supports <laughs> uh, the latest version of Python. I can understand it too. Like this kind of relates into something that you did at the end of your talk where you're asking 
for help. You're like, hey, I, I'm looking to see if other people would want to help in that. And I'm kind of wondering how, how that's gone for you. Um, that was back in, I guess, May or April of last year. Have people reached out and come to help you on the project? Yeah, a few people have. Uh, and providing test cases and trying it out, which has been really helpful. So running Pigeon over more libraries and packages. Actually, somebody ran it over the uh, the Django test suite, like the internal okay. Django test suite. That was really interesting uh, and uncovered some kind of like quirky bugs and stuff like that that took me a while to to fix. And that's a, that was like a really complicated problem to tackle as well. <laughs> <laughs> There's somebody who works on the Hypothesis library, uh, which is like a, oh, te- okay. uh, a test. Oh, I don't know what you'd call it. It allows you to generate lots of different like data and and different fuzzer. That's it. Yeah, fuzzy a, uh, information. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a te- like a fu- uh, test fuzzer. So somebody who's trying to run both hypothesis and the hypothesis test suite with pigeon enabled, which is like uh, again a really complicated problem. So that's been really helpful. But in terms of people actually contributing to the guts of it, like the code, there hasn't been anybody yet. Uh, there's been lots of people who are interested. Just that. This is the one of the challenges is that the learning curve for it's pretty pretty steep, and this is one of the challenges I think with like why Python the compiler itself like there's so many things you could do to make it more efficient, but like to get to a position where you can work on it like there's so much you need to do and there's so much you need to research and read and understand in order to get there yeah. It's such a steep learning curve. It eliminates a lot of people, you know, partly just on the experience side, but also time. Like, you know, not everybody has the time to study for a year about compiler theory to get to the point where they can work on it. Like, that's not really fair. (laughs) Yeah, that's hard. Yeah, so that's why when you look at people who are actually working on this stuff, so the people on uh, Meta who are working on it, like, there's like a dedicated team of engineers working on optimizing python um so like that's where their project came from and now guido at microsoft is is leading a team uh mark shannon who are working on optimizing python as well so like uh, they're people who are dedicated like dedicated engineers but they've also got like decades of experience working on compilers it's it's a very niche part of technology and uh, requires a lot of research i think to to get stuck into yeah. i mean m- millions of people use python and like you can read the source code but like the the guts of okay how do we make this more efficient like there's so many things you need to know in advance yeah that's kind of what makes it hard yeah i can imagine like it brings up like about five different things i can think about to ask you but like when uh i had lucas on and you know he's working pretty hard as developer in residence and you know, he admits himself, like, it's like, I don't know everything that's, you know, in the, <laughs> in the source code of, of Python mm. down and all those levels and those different libraries and so forth. And he's been working in Python, you know, for a very long time. So I, I kind of wonder like, what would be, I guess you kind of mentioned some of them, but what would be like prerequisites for someone that if they were going to, to help with creating some of these optimizations because you have uh, what like 17 optimizations that you list mm. that pigeon can kind of help with to kind of make your your code faster if someone was potentially going to help you with that like what sort of background would they they need but, uh, knowledge of assembly is one thing um okay unfortunately <laughs> so you know when you're debugging python code in you know, your ide you can set a breakpoint you know, when you run the code and you can see what the variables are and stuff. When you debug JIT code, you're debugging assembly. Okay. Because it, there was no code that, like, you can't actually see, like, high-level code because there wasn't any. So this is, this is like, one of the really tricky things with working on Pigeon and JIT compilers is that you, you spend a lot of time looking at assembly code. So that's one thing people would definitely have to do. I would say I taught myself assembly over a few months and it wasn't, like, I'm not an expert by any means. And it sounds really scary. And I, but I think with a good book, um, if I, <laughs> I've got mine's Joe Van Huey, is, it was the guy who wrote it. Um, and it was x86-64 specifically. Like, don't just read the x86, the old 32-bit 
books because is it relevant with modern CPUs? Get a sixty yeah. get a sixty four bit okay. uh, Intel architecture assembly book, um, but that like teaches you how to write assembly code from scratch and like how to write actual programs and like how to import libraries and okay stuff like that. So that's that's cool. That's really helpful. And also knowledge of the .NET SIL, uh, which is is something you can learn pretty easily. Um, it's not too complicated. And then C++ experience, because Pigeon is all written in C++. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, those things. And you've been you've been writing in C++ for a while. Uh, yeah, it's actually one of the first languages I learned. So I, I've kind of been using it for uh, a long time, on and off. Yes, yeah, so for f- yeah, since I started coding, really. So. And yeah, it's akin to C, but yeah, I guess with objects and lots of other quirks. <laughs> all, all the add-ons, yeah. yeah. Cool. Would there be other types of help that you'd be looking for? Yeah, I, people just to use it and to try it out and run it with test suites and find bugs and stuff like that. And like, that's really helpful for me. Yeah. People who've submitted issues where they run it on a test suite and, you know, the test without Pigeon would pass and the test with Pigeon would fail. And it's all reproducible and, you know, I can understand why it's done that. That's kind of what I'm looking for at the moment. Cool. Like, I think the optimizations that are at a point now where they're, you know, getting uh, mature, it just needs to be worked on the the actual stability and the compatibility needs to be at the focus at the moment. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> where do you find the time <laughs> to, to, to work on this? Because I, I can imagine it's a, a pretty big investment. Yeah, I... I'm probably working at like a few hours a week at the moment. Okay. Uh, part of my role, I do actually have a, I guess, an allocation of time to work on open source projects and I use it to work on this. So yeah, I can't remember what percentage. I think it's like 15 or 20% of my time. Okay. I can work on open source projects and that's what I uh, do on this. And, and sometimes I just get stuck into it for a day or so and then make the time up another time. <laughs> so... Yeah, it look, it's a lot of work, but it's, you know, this is all spread out over a year or, or a year or so. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff with Pigeon and these kind of projects, I guess, is like working on it for an hour and thinking about it for a week. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> those, pretty common, right? <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of those kind of problems where like, uh, and that's something that I've taught myself over the years is that when you get stuck on something, identify where you're not going to make any more progress by at the computer like yeah uh, I've, been, I've been looking at this problem can't figure it out i'm getting really frustrated so i'm going to go and do something else like i'm going to go and work in the garden or you know i don't know take the dog out or something <laughs> right and then i'll leave it for a week and then you know a few days time often in the shower or like when I'm walking or something, I'll like, yeah. you just kind of figure out the answer in your, bri- uh, in your mind or you're like, oh, I wonder if it was because of this. And yeah, there's been, I can't remember which scientist it was, but like said that like most of their scientific discoveries were made like whilst doing a walk around the garden uh, and not in the laboratory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I've exp- you know experienced that a lot. And very often take people away like if it's a project with multiple people to take them all away from the computer for a little while and like sit and just kind of talk about it a little bit like can make things pop out in kind of interesting way too like i've always tried to do that with people when i was building projects for them like, okay let's just all get away from the computers or screens or whatever and just kind of like talk about well, how are you using this and like what's coming happening and then like can kind of come up with really interesting solutions so i, I it's it's kind of surprising the way your brain works. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Yeah, it needs to think of things. It I, asynchronously. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's an asynchronous process. <laughs> yeah, I'm really impressed with the project, and I, I definitely want to play with it some more. And and I, I definitely will put the call out here for people that if they're interested in, in helping in those ways, that um, they should definitely check it out. And I really like the the site you have, the live site, so that people can get a better visualization it's always hard on a podcast to sort of explain like you know okay what does you know machine code look like or what does sil code look like or kind of what's happening there i like that part of the project that you've done that's really great so the cpython internals book came out i guess it would be 2020 i don't remember the exact (laughs) timing 
And I guess like the subtitle of it is uh, your guide to the Python three interpreter. Hmm. If you were going to pitch somebody on it, like who is this for? Like who, who should be interested in diving into the internals? Uh, a few different audiences. Uh, one would be people who are wanting to write extension C extensions. Okay. For Python. I think if you do write, it doesn't teach you like all the APIs and stuff you need to, I think there's plenty of places to learn that, but it, you do need to know like how Python works to, to write C extensions. That's kind of one audience, I guess. And the other audience is people who are like intermediate Python programmers. So like they've been using it for a while, but they're still, it's still a bit of a black box. So like you, you know, you allocate objects and uh, you create objects in loops and stuff like that. But like a ha- how and why it does things, yeah, it's still a bit of a mystery. So it's really for people who are, curious to learn a lot more and open up that black box and understand it and when we talked about like the prerequisites for contributing to pigeon like so many and it's it's you know it is a bit of a steep learning curve with python like internals if you wanted to contribute to python itself like the actual c python project if you wanted to you know submit pull requests and make improvements and things like that's brilliant and people should absolutely do that this book would be ideal like it would teach you all the things you need to know about how like python works and what you know how the source code is structured and how it allocates objects and things so it's either if you want to contribute to python or if you just want to push yourself a bit and to learn something different and get in into the guts of a of a big fairly complicated application but i don't want to make the book sound scary because the way it's been written is to essentially describe how python works but in a way which is approachable and accessible to to anybody really like uh, you know i spent a lot of time on each individual chapter like how can i explain memory allocation or how can i explain multi-threading for example, like in a way that's easy to understand with people who don't know these concepts. So I, I there's no assumption when you get this book that you know anything about compilers or Right. Okay. Um even C actually, like Jim on the Real Python team wrote a an extra chapter, like a bonus chapter at the back of the book, which is like quick guide to C. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, here's enough, you know, how to how to read it enough to figure out kind of what's going on. So there's chapters on like, you know, how it actually turns the language, like the code you've written, how it turns that into something that it can understand. And there's also practical exercises in the book. So one of the things you do through the chapters is you add a new feature to the language. Okay. So, you know, when you're writing a Python expression, like if A equals 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 b or greater than b like those are those are like expressions you write and we we introduce a new one which is using the squiggly line on the keyboard or the tilde yeah which is above the tab key i guess um yeah just below the escape yep. yeah <laughs> anyone anyone who played a lot of quake will know that key <laughs> <laughs> sure so yeah we basically add a new operator which is tilde equals and we call it almost equal <laughs> and basically what you'll do in the book is actually implement that as a new piece of syntax in the python language and compile and make your own custom version of python that supports this almost equal so that one almost equals 1.01 like that they're pretty close so <laughs> okay yeah uh, and we implement it for strings as well so like hello with a capital h is almost equal to hello with a lowercase h. Right, okay. So yeah, like the actual practical stuff, not just reading the, the source code, but actually making changes to it as well. And then talking about performance and how does like how does this async in a way actually work and how do coroutines work? And like it digs into everything really in Python and explains how it actually fits together. I feel like I've been doing this program for almost two years now and... I had like another like year and a half or so kind of before this. And so I've kind of been ramping up my, my knowledge. And again, I've kind of bounced around to lots of different languages, but interviewing people, talking to people like Brett about his unraveling series and getting tastes of kind of like what's happening inside of these different things. I feel like I'm now at that moment, like, okay, this is, I'm ready to like explore it. And one of the things I was wondering about was 
okay, you you spent some time talking about it, but I thought maybe we could mention it here is like you're going to be running C, <laughs> right? Yeah. So you what type of editor or what kind of setup does a person need to be able to to do the examples and kind of go through the book? Yeah, that's all explained. There's a chapter on like how to set up editors and things. So you can choose between Visual Studio Code would be one. So there are both in Visual Studio Code, there's extensions for Python and for C, C++, and you can set it up so that, you know, it can compile and understand all of the above. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's actually some of the core developers are now using VS Code as like the tool to kind of tie things together. Or you can use like a console editor like Vim or Emacs if like, if that's what you're used to, I wouldn't recommend if you're starting from nothing, jumping in and picking a tool like that because they're pretty hardcore. But I do explain, okay, here's, here's all the customizations you should probably make to Vim in order to get like everything up and working. Another option would be C-Lion, which is the JetBrains RDE. Okay. So PyCharm is fine, but like the C and C++ uh, support is very minimal. Like you, you can just read the code, but you can't actually compile the project. Oh, okay. So uh, C-Line is their equivalent for C and C++, and that works really well with a C-Python source code. There's no community version of C-Line, though, so that's a paid, paid product. Yeah, but I do kind of talk about that in the book. Uh, and if you're on Windows, there's... Um, Visual Studio as well, which is like has full C and C++ support. Um, so you can, and there's also in the C Python source code, there's also a Visual Studio project already pre-made that you can just open and it's got everything there. Okay. Because the, the people who work on the Windows parts of C Python use Visual Studio to, to edit it. So like, you know, you kind of get the advantage of all the tooling. I don't know what the majority of core developers use. I think, a lot of them use uh, Vim or Emacs as like a, a text console editor, but only because they've been using that forever and they know all the shortcuts and stuff. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. This week, the spotlight is a bit different. I want to let you know how you can check out the book that Anthony and I have been talking about on this episode. There's a 75-page preview of the book available at cpythoninternals.com. It's your guided tour through the Python interpreter, and you can unlock the inner workings of the Python language. Here are a few highlights and goals of the book. You'll be able to read and navigate CPython interpreter source code, make changes to the Python syntax, and compile your own version of CPython from scratch, master CPython's memory management capabilities, debug C and Python code like a professional. And it's a great start if you're interested in participating in the development of CPython. CPython Internals is a great and unique resource for anybody looking to take their knowledge of Python to a deeper level. And Guido Van Rossum, creator of Python, said, I can recommend CPython Internals to anyone who wants to get going with hacking on CPython. Check out Anthony Shaw's CPython Internals. And don't forget, there's a 75-page preview of the book available at cpythoninternals.com. And there's also going to be a link in the show notes. I kind of wonder about that. It kind of leads almost into your article uh, for Rule Python. But I was kind of, when I talked to Brett Cannon a couple weeks ago, he felt at the time that he was more of a code editor person, mm. you know, somebody who had been using like Vim or Emacs and, and things like that. And that's how he uses uh, VS Code now mm. because it's sort of portable in a way, uh, unlike something that's a, a full on integrated development environment. And I kind of wondered, like, where do you fall on that spectrum? Are you more of a, like, full-on integrated development person or or a code editor type person? Yeah, I definitely said I used to be more of a full-on integrated development person. But now the stuff, projects that I work on span across different technologies. So it's... Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> it's almost impossible to, like, I, I you know, in, in a single day, I'll be working on JavaScript, HTML, TypeScript, Python, C++. Uh, so, like, I, uh, unless I have uh, six different IDEs open all at the same time. <laughs> right. And my machine, my main workstation, has got 32, 32 gig of RAM, which, you know, sounds like a lot, but on some days is really not enough, mm. which gets a bit crazy. And it's just, it's just everything grinds to a halt, and it's really not 
Great. Whereas I've kind of been using uh, VS Code now for the last couple of years, I guess, and pulling in like all the extensions that are specific to the tech stack that I'm working on. So now I really tend to have like a few VS Code windows open working on different projects or different environments and stuff like that. And then I've got 90, I just looked, I've got 91 extensions in my VS Code. All right. (laughs) Which I should probably cut down at some point. But yeah, basically like to do pretty much everything, um, whether it's like editing Markdown or working on C++ or working on TypeScript or anything like, so kind of almost like built my own custom IDE in VS Code, um, if that makes sense. So like, yeah, it's like a, it's like a multi (laughs) IDE or whatever. Yeah. So it kind of basically does everything for me now and I can just kind of stay in the one tool. And the thing I like about it is that it, it, it loads the extensions that it needs. Okay. So if you're working on a project, uh, if you're working in a folder and it only has Python code, it's not going to load up the C++ extension. Like it, it doesn't do that, which is good. So like it, it's still fast. Like it's still it's quick to start, and like I can still use it to edit like um, you know, a Markdown file and stuff like that. And it's still going to be pretty quick. Yeah. Cool. Kind of going back to the book a little bit. Why did you take on that task of of writing the book? Probably similar to Pigeon. I think it was just uh, like I kind of dabbled with internals of Python for a while, and then just got really curious and worked on an article for Real Python, and it was like a deep dive into the source code. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then had a chat with Dan uh, Dan Bader at the PyCon in uh, twenty eighteen, I think, maybe twenty nineteen. Okay. And we talked about the article and then agreed to turn that into a book. (laughs) (laughs) Expand it. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, well, if I was to write it all again, like, yeah, you know, there are different, different ways of approaching things. And like, I'd want to use a lot more, like make it a lot more visual, the book to explain like complicated concepts and stuff like that and try to condense it down a lot so that you're not looking at source code, you're understanding concepts. So yeah, it was really just something I wanted to do. Yeah, cool. So this article that you wrote recently, the Advanced Visual Studio Code for Python Developers, mm. that one, I've kind of gone through a lot of it, and you know, it, it's it's an interesting guide. It's one of these things where you wanted to show. It seems to me that you wanted to show like a huge like swath of like, well, these are the ways that you could customize it and and kind of give people uh, different directions, like. How do you see someone like using this guide? I, I as a bookmark, okay, <laughs> um, <laughs> as a, as a reference for later use. That's definitely what I I use it for. Even though I wrote it, like I bookmarked this in specific sections and chapters, like sends people all the time. People are asking, oh, how do you do this?" Or like, "What would be the right way to do this in VS Code?" I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, here's the instructions. Just you know, follow follow this section of the guide." Yeah, uh, you could you could read the whole thing start to finish if you want, but you know, like it basically tells you how to take like VS Code out of the box is is, is an editor, right? Is a code is a code editor similar to like Sublime or something? You know, fairly simple text editor. It's very expandable though, <laughs> as we discussed so far. Yeah, exactly. And this this kind of shows you how almost like actually like how I've set up my environment. So it kind of expands on like okay, how do you customize the user interface and the built-in terminal? And um, like, how should you lay out your VS Code settings so that you can commit them to Git so that other people on the team have got the same rules, but they don't get, you know, uh, confused with where you've got things installed and like linting and formatting code and, and like basically like customizing the whole environment to be specific to your projects. Yeah. And like you can do so much with it. Like that, I talk about tasks, for example, which is like a built-in feature where you can define what scripts to run, or like I don't know, like if you need extra things, like for Django, for example, like there's all those Django commands, like compile static and yeah, make migrations and stuff. Like you can define those as things that can be run automatically in VS Code, and it will go and do that stuff for you in the background. Yeah, I liked how you, you talked about. You know, it's been a common thing lately to talk to people about 
uh, packaging up their code and, and sharing it for distribution. And so you said, well, you could set it up to have like a task system that would, you know, build a wheel or resource to distribution if you wanted. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, one big part of it is the remote development with containers, which is a like such a cool feature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you can take a project. So, you know, you've created a fast API app or a Flask app or whatever, and you want to turn that into a Docker image. You know, you could do it the old school way, which is like create the Docker file, run Docker build, run Docker run, and then like see if it works. And then it doesn't, okay, I need to go make some changes and then run build again. And then so like it's just that like cycles, just is really slow. Yeah, 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 definitely. So VS Code will basically like, restart itself but it will basically put itself inside a docker container so that like you're editing the code in the container and when you run the debugger it's like running in the container so you basically it's it's a much more efficient way of writing docker containers and building applications which are to run in docker is to just build them natively in vs code with the docker the remote the remote container extension uh, and it also builds the, it like writes the docker file for you so like it's got templates and stuff as well, which is really cool. You, you were just talking about like how many extensions you had. Was it 90, you said? Yeah. And you kind of talk about some of your, I don't know if they'd be your favorites, but your bonus extensions, there's a little section there. Yeah, it's like uh, spell checkers and there's a Docker extension as well, which is like managing your local Docker environment. Uh, one of my favorites is a Thunder, which is a uh, like a REST API client. So if anyone's ever used Postman or anything like that it's basically a GUI for creating HTTP requests that's great to a rest API but it's like built into vs code so yeah when you're working with fast API um, or flask or Django rest framework or something you know if you want to do some testing when it's running you just install thunder client and create the requests and and just do it all inside the editor instead of switching tools yeah that I was using postman and I don't know something had changed with with it recently and yeah. um, this looks like a really great way to kind of keep it all in this environment already which is nice yeah and then of course we got to talk about <laughs> your own personal extension the vs code pets <laughs> yeah so i mentioned at the end um uh, so i made an extension to vs code um which uh amusingly is like become really popular yeah i know (laughs) (laughs) are you becoming known for the the pets extension (laughs) yeah i was was talking to my wife about like oh she's like how's things going at microsoft and i was like yeah it's great um but i'm worried that like people are going to know me as the person who made the pets extension (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) like thirty-six thousand installs now but yeah it's so it's a it was just made for a bit of fun um but it kind of brightens up your vs code a bit so it adds a panel in VS Code and you can add pets to the panel and they wander around and they make friends with each other. And, oh yeah, you can uh, have like multiple can, ones in there. <laughs> yeah, sure. and you can like throw a ball and they'll like play catch and stuff. And yeah, they just generally just like goof around in this little panel and there's lots of different pets. There's like cats and dogs and snakes and um, people, are adding, <laughs> people are adding new ones all the time. Yeah, I keep seeing new ones in there. <laughs> yeah, so that kind of makes it, makes it fun. That's cool. So I have these weekly questions, mm. if you still have time to kind of go over them. Yeah, shoot. Okay, so the first one is, what is something that you're excited about in the world of Python right now? That could be an event or a package or a book. I'm really excited about Python 3.11. Okay. That's going to come out later this year. Uh, just following all the advancements that are being merged in at the moment, I think it's going to be a, a real mile, milestone release for performance in particular. I think it's going to probably be the biggest step up in performance that we've seen probably ever actually in Python to be honest. Wow. Yeah, cool. Yeah, just following some of the changes that they're making. I don't know if anyone's done any benchmarks yet and it's probably too early too because, you know, a lot of stuff's still in flux, but it's yeah, from what I'm seeing it's going to be a massive change. That's great. And then what's something that you want to learn next? It doesn't have to be Python specific. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm still on this kind of compiler uh, journey at the moment, so I'm kind of chipping away at this this compiler book, uh, okay. n- known as the Dragon Book. Which, <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I, it does have a dragon on the cover, but yeah, it's it's you, it's one of those books where you have to kind of chip in and uh, and do a chapter and 
uh, not even a chapter actually. I can just get like through a couple of pages and then <laughs> let it settle in your brain and let it settle. Yeah, yeah, and think about it. Or um, actually, the last the last bit I was reading it was like about like different optimizations and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, okay, I think that makes sense. And then went to work on like how do you visualize that and how can you create those graphs and stuff automatically. So um, yeah, I'm probably going to keep working on that. Great. And then um, I don't know if you have any calls to action or shout outs that you'd like to give yeah um yeah check out the vs code article of be the call to action and yeah bookmark it and then share it with colleagues and stuff i think it's a it's a great reference guide something to keep handy yeah yeah and also please download and check out pigeon and run it on your code and file any issues if you get any quirky bugs or anything um so i can continue to help make it more stable and if you want to get involved in the project absolutely um give me a shout Okay, awesome. Thanks, Anthony, for coming on the show again. It's been really great to talk to you. Yeah, it's been a great discussion. Thanks, Christopher. And don't forget, Honey Badger. Badger, 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 mushroom, mushroom. Badger, 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 a snake. Oh, it's a snake. Go to honeybadger.io to get error monitoring on your site and get that song out of your head. I want to thank Anthony Shaw for coming on the show again. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.